Oh me, oh my. Welcome to episode 12 of Ineptus Astartus. I'm your host, Ned, and I am so happy to be back here with all of you. It's been a week since Adepticon. More than a week. It's been two weeks? Two weeks. Oh my gosh. It's been two weeks since Adepticon. And life's starting to settle back into normal, starting to think about some of those future projects, moving forward to things. How are you? How's your hobby? Got a nice little show for you today. Got a few things to get to that I've been putting off because I've been busy getting ready for Adepticon. I'm going to help a friend talk through some of the things they can do and how they should might consider expanding their Imperial Fists force. Going to talk about the new releases coming out and how well that's going. Hint, it's not going great. And then we're going to continue on with our heavy support look, and we're going to get through the Leviathan, hopefully with more, a uh, little bit more brevity than last time. I think I, I think I prattled on a little bit about the Predators. I don't know. Also going to do a little bit of a wrap up, specifically about Beta Garmin, with my friend Dark Apostle Ben, because I mean it was a big deal for us uh, over those months, and I could not really fit that specifically into the last episode. So without further ado, here we go. So first off, we're going to see what we can do to help our friend of the show, Zach. Zach has a lot of potential stuff for his Imperial Fists, and he's just curious about list-building opportunities, different things he could do with them, you know, just ideas and whatnot. So without further ado, what is in Zach's pile of opportunity? Zach has Dorn, Sigismund, Fafnir Ran, Alexis Pollux, the Terminator Praetor, the Artificer Praetor, a Pravian, a Moritat, a Huskarl Squad, a Castellan with Autocannon, uh, four Apothecaries, three Contemptor Dreadnoughts, ten Templar Brethren, twenty Cataphracti Terminators, forty Tactical Marines, ten Rotor Cannon Marines, twenty Phalanx Warders, two Sabres, five Seekers, ten Autocannon Marines, a Kratos, Two Land Raider Proteus, one Land Raider Explorator, two Spartans, a Leviathan Dread, a Sakaran Battle Tank, four Predators with Melta, Laz Cannon, Auto Cannon, and Auto Cannon already on their hulls, a Dreadclaw, a Charybdis, a Thunderhawk, and two Rhinos. Now, we're going to give him a couple different lists and ideas of things he could build with these things. Now, obviously, like this is, I think, just everything that he has uh, that could potentially be. Imperial Fists. So we're not going to just throw everything into one list because you don't necessarily need to or want to do that. He might want to expand with another force at some point and, you know, maybe he wants to mix things up a little bit. Now, that being said, um, maybe he is just going to be that one Legion guy. I know some people who have got like 20,000 points of a single force. I appreciate that. That's dedication. I am too big of an ADD poster child to ever get to that point, probably. But regardless, that's what we have, and that's where we go from here. So to start off, we should begin at the beginning. How's that for prophetic? We're going to talk a little bit about the Imperial Fists, their basic rules, and then have that sort of help us put the whole thing together. So the Imperial Fists, their legion trait um, is called uh, Discipline and Resolve. Models with this special rule gain a bonus of plus one to hit rolls with any auto or bolt weapon as part of a shooting attack, which includes reactions. So auto weapons, um, there's a wide variety of things that are in fact auto weapons, but auto cannons are some of the more prevalent this edition because auto cannons I think got considerably better. 
And then there's bolt weapons. You know what those are. Bolters, nemesis bolters, heavy bolters, all that sort of good stuff. The Imperial Fist's advanced reaction is an interesting one. The best defense. This can maybe made once per battle in the opposing player's movement phase. When any enemy unit ends within 10 inches and line of sight with a model with this rule... Then the reacting player makes a charge roll, um, rolling a d6 plus the lowest unmodified initiative characteristic of any model in the reacting unit and any charge modifiers that the unit has. If the charge is if the charge is successful, if the charge is successful, the units are locked in combat and fight in the assault phase as normal, and the charging unit benefits from any charge bonuses like hammer of the wrath or whatever. If the charge fails, then no surge move is made. So this is like a close range charge. D6 plus your initiative means you're going to make, what, 5 to 10 inch charges. You know, you've got to be pretty close to your opponent to try to, to throw this out there. Because if they're just at 10 inches, then you, it's really hard to do. But it's, it's still sort of a cool rule. In addition to that, the other thing that I want to talk about briefly is their special, their special centurion and their special war gear and then their rights of war. So as far as the special centurion, they get something called a castellan for 20 points, and they gain the fire support rule and the heavy unit support type. When making an attack with a heavy weapon, a castellan may increase the number of attacks made by that weapon by plus one when making a shooting attack. Um, in addition, any legion heavy support squads in the same detachment as a castellan gain line. So that part in particular is, is like silly. If this rule did not include the plus one shooting attack, this would still be an excellent rule because suddenly you grant scoring to as many heavy support squads as you have. Heavy support squads are already really good, and giving them line just makes them better right now. The Centurion Castellan can take a Mastercrafted Heavy Bolter for free, a Mastercrafted Auto Cannon for five points, or an Elastius Assault Cannon for ten points. The Castellan, though, does have to be on foot. It can't take a jump pack, combat bike, a jet bike. It can't take a combat shield, boarding shield, power fist, solarite power gauntlet, lightning claw, or any other weapon with a two-handed profile. So that's interesting. The I guess the closest equivalent um, the, in the generic rules um, can take those weapons just for fun, which is interesting. Okay, the Elastis Assault Cannon is a special weapon that is specific to the, well, this legion and the Blood Angels, I believe. And any model with the Legionis Astartes special rule and the inventory unit type can exchange a heavy flamer for an Elastius Assault Cannon for 10 points. A legion predator with the Legionis Astartes uh, Imperial Fist special rule may exchange a turret-mounted predator cannon for a turret-mounted twin-linked Elastius Cannon at no additional points. And then any model with the Dreadnought vehicle um, or, or vehicle unit type and Imperial Fist can exchange a heavy uh, flamer for 20 points. So Dreadnoughts and vehicles for 20 points, infantry for 10. The The stat line on the Elastius Assault Cannon is 24 inches, strength 6, AP 4, Assault 4, Rending 6+, plus, and then Malfunction. And the malfunction rule only applies during the rea uh, reaction. If you shoot it during a reaction, it gains gets hot. So it matters for reactions, but no other time. Assault 4, Strength 6 with Rending. I mean, it's it's a pretty good little gun. The Castellan, most importantly, and it, you're going to see that this is a part, basically, of the design of the Imperial Fists, 
is that it grants line manipulation. So it gives an entire subtype of, of units line, which is kind of nuts because that I don't I can't think of any other example where it grants line to everything um, outside of rights of war. And there's not many rights of war that grant those things. So let's talk about uh, some of the other bits of uh, armory for the Imperial Fist briefly, and then we'll go on to the rights of war. So you can take a Vigil Storm f- Shield. It is a three plus invulnerable like Thunder, Thunder Hammer, no, Storm Shield. Is that what it's called? I can't remember. Anyway, it's a three plus invulnerable save shield, and they do not stack with other invulnerable saves, cannot be modified by any other special rule. If a model has another invulnerable save, then the controlling player may choose which one to use. A model with a Vigil Storm Shield may never gain additional attack for being armed with two close combat weapons or make attacks with a weapon using the two-handed special rule. Any model that has the Legionosa Stardust rule and the independent character special rule that does not have the unique unit subtype may take a Vigil Storm Shield for 20 points. So 20-point upgrade here. In addition, any models with the Legionosa Stardust Imperial Fist special rule in Legion Terminator Squad or Legion Tartaros Command Squad may exchange a Combi Bolter for a Vigil Storm Shield at 15 points. Any models with the Legionosa Stardust special rule in the Cataphracti or Cataphracti Command Squad can exchange a Combi Bolter for a Vigil Storm Shield for 10 points each. So five more points to put it on a Tartaros, which makes sense because the Tartaros squad only has that five plus invulnerable save first. So you're going from a five plus invulnerable to a three plus invulnerable, which is excellent. Five points less for the Cataphracti because they already get a four plus. So it's a slightly more, it's, it's, it's only slightly better when compared to the um, upgrade that the Tartaros get, but it's still a great upgrade. Next up, we talk about the teleport strike special rule. And this special rule is an upgrade that can be purchased by Legion Cataphracti Terminator squads or Legion Terminator Tartaros squads or their respective command squad upgrades. Those four squads may be given the Deep Strike special rule for 25 points per unit, and then any model with both Legionos Astartes Imperial Fist and Independent Character may be given the Deep Strike special rule for 20 points per model. So you, for those four squads, you can give them Deep Strike for 25 points. And interestingly, any Imperial Fists independent character can then also buy it for 20 points. Um, I believe that makes it pretty expensive to Deep Strike a command squad for like 45 points. But I guess approximately the same cost you would spend on a drop pod. So maybe it's not that big of a deal. Finally, the last upgrade is the Solarite Power Gauntlet. Any model with the Imperial Fist special rule can exchange a Power Fist for a Solarite Gauntlet for 5 points or exchange a Thunder Hammer for 1 for free. And the uh, special rules are it's a melee weapon with Strength 10, AP 1, and Unwieldy. It is just a better Power Fist. Interestingly enough, the Strength on the Solarite Power Gauntlet is just flat 10 as opposed to being Strength times 2. I'm not sure immediately how that factors or be better or worse than some other things, but I just find that interesting. AP1 means that, you know, you're much more likely, well, statistically twice as likely on a penetration roll uh, to blow up a tank than you would be with uh, AP2. So the Imperial Fists also have a very impressive three rights of war to choose between and all three of them have interesting things they can do some of them are better than others but regardless let's start with a hammerfall strike force and this is one in which phalanx warder squads may be taken as troop choices during this right of war 
all models in a unit composed entirely of models with the infantry unit subtype and Legionus Astartes Imperial Fists in a detachment with this right of war can be granted deep strike for 30 points for a unit. So that gives you the vibe of how this works. All models in a unit composed of models with the infantry unit type upgraded to have deep strike in this detachment um, using the right of war gain shrouded 5 plus when deployed onto the battlefield as part of a deep strike assault, which is really good. This effect lasts in the beginning of the controlling player's next turn. Obviously, in a system this edition where getting intercepted, getting shot to crap, is a big concern when you're trying to deep strike, having shrouded 5 plus native on everything is, is very nice. The limitation is that models with the vehicle unit type in this detachment must begin in reserves and cannot be assigned to deep strike, assault, or subterranean assault, or an outflanking assault. And then a detachment using this right of war may not take fortification choices. That makes sense. This is an assault force. You're teleporting in. This is a really cool thematic thing to run in, like, something that is simulating a boarding action or something like that. I guess deep strike into zone mortalis or something. That makes sense to me. Now, while the shrouded is excellent, and obviously you're going to put a lot of your eggs into the same basket of deep strike, so to speak, um... Some things you're probably going to want to run here is a Master of Signals as a secondary HQ on the table. Probably a couple tactical squads, something to make sure that you're on the board. Uh, you've got something on the board that doesn't get shot off, so you can actually get that deep strike going. Interestingly enough, Phalanx Warders can be taken as troops, but they are not line in this right of war. So you're still having to take other line choices if you're playing to worry about scoring or that sort of thing. Very flavorful, very fun, and I believe there are special characters that would make this, in particular, really interesting. So let's go ahead and talk about one of those now. So very famously in his lore, Alexis Pollux plans a really daring void attack deep strike assault on the Iron Warriors at the Battle of Fall, I believe. And so he is an interesting one that I immediately thought of for this right of war. Alexis Pollux is 185 points. He has got a pretty standard... Pretty standard Praetor stat line outside of a couple of interesting things. One is that his ballistic skill is only four, um, but his strength is five. So that's pretty wild. Movement seven, weapon skill six. Like I said, ballistic skill four, strength five, toughness four, three wounds, initiative five, three attacks, leadership 10, and a two plus armor save. He has artificer armor. He has an iron halo. He has a solarite power gauntlet and a vigil storm shield and a combi melta frag and crack grenades and he's got a whole heap of special rules the first is legion of Sestardes, imperial fists of course then he's got independent character master of the legion void commander deep strike hammer blow warlord trade is master tactician and then loyalist guaranteed so his warlord trait is master tactician and it's after all models are deployed, but before any rolls to seize initiative are made, the controlling player of Pollux may redeploy one friendly unit within the limitations of the, lim the mission being played. This may place a unit that had been deployed normally into reserves or bring a unit out of reserves, but may not add or remove units that have been assigned to a deep strike assault, drop pot assault, flanking assault, or subterranean assault. In addition... Uh, an army with Alexis Pollux may make an additional reaction in the opponent's assault phase. So this is really interesting. Deployment shenanigans, redeployment shenanigans are really strong in this edition. Um, well, in any edition, honestly, because the ability to react to things is fun. Interesting that you can throw something into reserves or take something out of reserves if you need to. 
but you can't mess with that deep strike assault that you're going to be planning for the hammer blow or hammer fall strike force, which is which is kind of fun, kind of cool, but it's definitely a strong trait. Now, if you don't decide to make Pollux your warlord, you've got somebody else better in mind or someone different, that's fine too. He does still have some other special rules that are going to be really good. First of all, he has the Void Commander special rule, and it says the controlling player may opt to automatically pass or fail any pinning test made for Alexis Pollux and any unit he's joined. Pinning is really sneaky this edition, and so I, I, th I think this is a stronger ability than some might think on first read. In addition, all models in a unit that Alexis Pollock joins while in reserves may gain the Deep Strike special rule. So he's going to give you one unit that Deep Strikes for free in this Rite of War, which is nothing to scoff at. I mean, this saves you like 30 points or something like that in this Rite of War. Not bad. Okay, lastly, Hammer Blow. During any fight subphase, Alexis Pollock's controlling player may choose to have Pollock's make a single attack with the hammer with the profile below instead of attacking normally. Um, while using this option, Pollock's may not get a bonus for charging additional weapons or anything else. So instead of striking with the Solarite Power Gauntlet, which is strength 10, AP 1, unwieldy in melee. Ooh, I just want everyone to know that as I started describing this power fist, I had clenched my fist aggressively to... Uh, I was feeling I was feeling the moment. I'm I'm doing the thing right now, shaking this fist at this at this microphone. Anyway, the hammer blow special rule, Pollux gets one of these. Strength ten, AP one, melee, armor bane melee, flesh bane, and exoshock six plus. So this is really, really good. There were addition there were rules like this last edition, and I believe that Pollux had one as well. And part of the reason for it, honestly, I always thought was you can get into a challenge you can try to swing one time and maybe kill your opponent with a power fist before they can kill you with their power fist or their thunder hammer or something else. But that alone would be pretty good, just removing the unwieldy from the hammer blow. But then you add in armor bane and flesh bane and exoshock, and suddenly this one attack is really fun. So the next thing here would be to talk about what you have, Zach, and how we would put it all together. I am going to, just for the flavor, put Pollux into a list here, this specific list. So what does a Hammerfall Strike Force list at 3,000 points with Alexis Pollock look like? So here's my first draft of your Hammerfall Strike Force list. This comes out currently to about 2,700 points. I'm leaving room to wiggle, add in new things, potentially do some different stuff, um, whatever it is that you like. But here's my idea. First off, we've got Alexis Pollux as the Warlord, as stated before. Second, we are going to have a Castellan uh, Centurion with the Autocannon upgrade for 85 points. We're going to have a Centurion with a Masters of Signals to try to help us with that Deep Strike roll. Um, and then we are also going to have a Huskarl squad, which will be escorting uh, Alexis Pollux. And teleporting in for free, it's going to have seven Huskarls and the Huskarl Master. Three of them are going to have Solarite Power Gauntlets. Two of them are going to have... Uh, I just went ahead and put Power Swords and then Power Axes. I mean, you can mix and match that any way you like. Sometimes I just like the idea of variety just for visual flair. It's up to you, Zach. So after that, we're talking about the troops. We are going to have two tactical squads that are, are ten strong a sergeant with artificer armor but no weapon upgrade and then but then two of the legionnaires are going to have nuncio vox and augury scanners nuncio vox again helping us 
with a little bit of that deep strike scatter if we need it. Then we're going to have a Phalanx Warder squad, nine dudes, and we're going to upgrade the uh, boss, the Warder Sergeant, with a Thunderhammer, actually. We are not going to do much else other than there. You could add a Vexilla here, I suppose, for 15 points if you so wished. Then we're also going to have a big, strong despoiler squad, 15 strong, three power axes. We're going to have, uh, we're obviously going to pay for that unit to deep strike. And um, the sergeant is going to have a solarite power gauntlet. And this squad is going to try to take advantage of the deep strike and hopefully get something pinned so that it can charge and use some of that spite of the legion to full effect. For heavy support, we are going to have one full 10-man heavy support squad with auto cannons for the Castellan to stand in, giving us one extra scoring option. Then we're also going to have a Leviathan Dreadnought. We'll also have a uh, Contemptor Dreadnought. And in the filling out the rest of the elite choices, we're going to add two Apothecaries, one for the Phalanx Warders and one for the big 15-man blob squad of Despoilers. Also then, for the Cataphracti Terminator squad, there will be, I believe I was able to fit, I think it's just six. Only six, but everybody's got a Vigil Storm Shield, and um, two of them have Thunder Hammers. The other ones have Power Weapons. So you've got points to play with in this list, and there's definitely things you could do. You could give Deep Strike to the the dreadnoughts as well. You could use the points that you're saving by having to give drop dreadnought drop pods to those squads and add another dreadnought for jogging onto the field. That could be pretty strong as well. But you've got a pretty solid crunch dropping with the deep strike. You've got lots of bolt pistol action and fun charging in with shields. It feels really thematic, really fluffy, and I don't think terribly oppressive. But there's other things you could add as well. Like, I thought about adding a second heavy support squad into this, but I got rid of that idea because I didn't like I didn't like the idea of having that much stuff off in reserve, or, I'm sorry, not in reserve. It was making the deep strike assault a little thin, and I feel like it needs to be a little thicker to survive getting shot at uh, or intercepted when it comes on the board. So there you have it. 2,700 points with room for adaptation or improvisation as you wish. But I do think it fits the theme of an Alexis Pollock's-led list. It feels fluffy. It's got some of the fun units, um, but with options to improve in different ways if you so wish. So since I've included them in this list, I'm going to have to go ahead and talk about them a little bit and talk about the Phalanx Warder Squad, which is an interesting one. Um, in this right of war, they become troops, but they don't necessarily have line. There are other ways, which we'll talk about next, that they get a little bit stronger. But the Phalanx Warder Squad is a very... Uh, it's an expensive 225-point squad for 10, uh, movement 7, weapon skill 4, ballistic skill, toughness, and strength 4, 1 initiative. So the stat line is a standard Marines with, with movement 7, weapon skill, ballistic skill, strength, and toughness 4, 1 wound, 4 initiative, 1 attacks, leadership 8, and a 3 plus save. And pretty much the standard plus 1 to attacks and plus 1 to leadership that you get from your warder sergeant. The war gear, they get a quite a lot. They get a bolter, they get a bolt pistol, a power axe, a boarding shield, frag and crack grenades, and a breacher's charge, and then power armor. They are infantry. They also get the heavy rule because of that boarding shield, so they get to reroll blast saves, um, or you know saves from weapon templates, 
and the sergeant has infantry character and heavy. The special rules, they of course get Legionus Astartes Imperial Fists, but they also get Shield Wall and Lockstep, and we'll talk about those things in a minute. Now, it doesn't matter for this last list, but they can take a Rhino or a Termite Assault Drill or a Land Raider Proteus as a dedicated transport, so long as there's not more than 10 of them. Now, you can bump this squad up. This can be a 20-man squad for an additional 20 points per model, but that's, like, that's very, very expensive. For every five models in the unit, one warder may replace the bolter with one of the following weapons, a Magna Combi weapon, a Minor Combi weapon, a Flamer, a Melta Gun, a Plasma Gun, or a Thunder Hammer. So that last one is sort of interesting. If you do a big squad, you can just have a bunch of Thunder Hammers sitting in the back. So, I mean, you could do some serious damage to something, potentially. One Phalanx Warder can get a Vexilla. One can get a Nuncio Vox. And the Sergeant can trade their Bolt Pistol, Bolter, or Power Axe for one of the following. A Power Fist, Plasma Pistol, Thunder Hammer, or Solarite Gauntlet. The Fist and the Plasma are 10 points, and the Thunder Hammer and the Solarite, makes sense, are 15 points. Now, the Warder Sergeant can also take Melta Bombs for 5 points, as you would expect. Artificer Armor for 10. But the entire squad can take uh, Melta Bombs for 50 points. On top of this, the Phalanx Warders have two special rules. The first is Lockstep. If a unit including at least three models with the lockstep special rule and it is not locked in combat, all friendly models in that unit, including those without the lockstep special rule, gain a bonus of plus one to weapon skill for the duration of any assault phase in which the unit is successfully charged by one or more enemy units. So this is much better to be charged than it is to charge. And then Shield Wall, which says that models in this unit with boarding shields, which are in base-to-base contact with at least two other models with a boarding shield, which are neither falling back or pinned, can add plus one to their invulnerable saves to a maximum of three plus. Friendly models with the independent character special rule that have joined a unit of Phalanx Warders also benefit from this special rule, so long as the unit includes at least three models with the Shield Wall special rule. So... Two basic ideas behind this: these two rules. Um, it is better to be charged, and um, it is basically a way to you know hold up yourself defensively. So getting a plus one to weapon skill will take these to weapon skill five, which does you know meet or beat a lot of requirements at least for that first round of combat. Then you've got the shield wall special rule, which can up your invulnerable saves of a plus one. So that's definitely pretty darn good um, in that situation. Now, this squad, though, is not, like, actually... I mean, it's good, but it's actually not that insane for a couple of reasons. One, they're only one attack base, and because of the fact that you have... um, Well, I mean, you can get... You have two close combat weapons because you have a bolt pistol, although I think the boarding shield prevents you from getting that additional attack, so you're only going to get the one attack. Um, They also are only one wound models, and they are pretty expensive, I like these units, but um, they are definitely not uh, unkillable machines. But having a free power axe on here, they're striking at initiative, uh, wounding on a two plus, or wounding on a three plus against most other marines with a two AP two value, and then a weapon skill five. At least in that first round of combat, it's pretty great. I could see myself taking this one squad, dropping it down in my deep strike assault putting it in a place where it's just standing in between some of the softer bits of my deep strike assault and something that's kind of heavy and trying to bait out 
um, a charge or trying to hold on to something. The other thing is that, I mean, you would lose the benefit of the plus one weapon skill, but this would also be an interesting one to hold in position for, like, baiting out the special the special reaction that you get. Now, with the extra points that Zach has for this, he could choose to make this uh, squad bigger, to multiply the value of the apothecary that I put with this squad, if you so wished. At 20 points a model, it's, I mean, it's not cheap, um, but it definitely is something that he could do. Um, I don't know. I like this squad. I think I would definitely have to include one of these in every Imperial Fist army I ran, just because I just think it's a cool motif um, to put in with your army. But would I do it more than the minimum? I'm not sure. It's also kind of tempting to put that 50 points per unit melt bombs on this squad, especially if you end up taking a larger squad. Um, this, this squadron does have some cool transport options if you keep it at 10 units, but you're not necessarily going to do that or have to worry about that in this rate of war because you are deep striking it. So there you go. That is the Hammerfall Rite of War sorted. Considering how many more models you have left, Zach, and how many more Rites of War there are to cover, we're not going to be able to get through all of this in one episode. Besides, I've got some other things I really wanted to touch on this time. So tune in next time for part two of how do we deal with Zach's pile of opportunity. We are going to continue on, though, with our heavy support series and talk about the big bowling ball of death itself, the Legion Leviathan Dreadnought Talon. So the Legion Leviathan Dreadnought Talon is 270 points base, movement 6, weapon skill and ballistic skill 5, strength and toughness 8, 7 wounds, 4 initiative, 5 attacks, leadership 9, and a 2 plus save. The basic unit composition is 1, Dreadnought, and it is a Dreadnought with the heavy subtype. The war gear is it comes in with 2 Leviathan Siege Claws with an inbuilt Melt-A-Gun. It has 2 Heavy Flamers and an Adamantic Deflector. The special rules is uh, Legiononis Astartus, as would you would expect. It has the Dreadnought Talon rule, which allows them, if you take more than one, they must deploy near each other at the start, but then after that they, they work like any other unit. Um, and Hammer of Wrath 3, and then move through cover, which is big. Uh, dedicated transport is that you can put them into a Legion Dreadnought Drop Pod or a Charybdis as a dedicated transport. And it doesn't use any other Force Org chart spots, of course, but it still must be paid for as part of the army. The unit can have up to two additional Legion Leviathan Dreadnoughts for an additional 270 points apiece. Any Dreadnought in that Talon may replace either of its Siege Claws and inbuilt Melt-A-Gun with one of the following. A Siege Drill and inbuilt Melt-A-Gun for five points. A Leviathan Storm Cannon for ten points. A Cyclonic Melt-A-Lance for 20 points, or a Grab Flux Bombard for 5 points. Uh, and there is a note here that if the Leviathan Siege Claw is replaced with a Storm Cannon, Melt-A-Lance, or a Grab Flux Bombard, then you reduce its attack characteristics to 4, because the two weapons is already included in the profile. Any Legion Leviathan Dreadnought may take a Phosphex Discharger for 20 points, or take two twin-linked Volkite Calibers in place of the Heavy Flamers for 15 points per model. So a question that I get very frequently, and I've been holding off on answering because of the fact that I knew I was going to get to this, this topic, people ask about Dreadnoughts and should they take a Leviathan or should they be taking Contemptors? And so I want to do a quick comparison between the two before we even get any further 
um, into anything else. So we're going to go line by line as far as this goes. So we will cover the individual options that are present, but the Leviathan, I'll just tell you now, has way, way fewer options than the Contemptor does. The Contemptor has tons of different options for weapons that it can take and different uh, in-bolt or in-built options on the guns, on the arms. A Contemptor can take a helical targeting array, like lots of other stuff. The Contemptor just has more stuff it can choose. It's a much more versatile tool kit in that regard. Doesn't mean that the Leviathan is necessarily worse by any stretch of the imagination. We really have to take a look at all of the different things and line them up. So one thing right away to note is that as far as speed goes, the Leviathan has a movement of six and the Contemptor has a movement of eight. So this is a huge, huge difference. Two inches of movement here means a heck of a lot. And so if you're thinking about, well, one of my dreadnoughts is going to be in a drop pod maybe, then the Leviathan should be the, the uh, contender, the leading contender, I think, because it is the slower of the two. Uh, the Contemptor is weaker by strength and by one point in both strength and toughness and has one less wound. Both of them strike at initiative four. The Contemptor only has three attacks base, which would go up to more if you had two close combat weapons. So the Leviathan has one more attack base if if you're if you're sporting the one gun one fist sort of thing but other than that similar so the question becomes does that 100 point difference because the leviathan is 95 points more expensive than the contemptor and so you lose two movement you gain some toughness you gain a wound you gain a strength do you gain an attack is that worth it well, you're also gaining a couple of other things. One, you are gaining, in fact, Hammer of Wrath 3. So Hammer of Wrath means that you're striking three automatic hits at your strength against the unit if, when you charge, when you close in a charge. Three automatic hits at strength 8 is nothing to scoff at. Um, but it also, one thing it's to point out is that it does lean towards something that we'll talk about a little bit later, which is... This is a rule that you get benefit of only if you're making a close combat dreadnought. Also, the Leviathan, despite being slower than the Contemptor, actually gets the move through cover special rule. One of the only weaknesses, really, that a Contemptor dreadnought has is the fact that it can be really gummed up by difficult terrain. And particularly, it has no way to compensate for moving through and charging through difficult terrain, which lowers its initiative to one. The Leviathan will not have that problem because of this special rule. Okay, both of these models can be deployed in the same way. They, st they both have the Dreadnought Talon rule, so you can bring a bunch of them for one force organization slot, and then they split. They all can be put, if you have one, I guess I should say, if the Contemptor Talon or the Leviathan Talon has only one Dreadnought, then you can put it in a dedicated transport, a drop pod, for 100 points, which is not nothing, but anyway, stay with me. So then let's talk about the overall build of the models. So the first thing you have to think about is how you want to load out this beast. So let's talk about the guns first. There are three options for weapons. Now, you do get two free melta guns with the, the purchase um, and two free heavy flamers. You can take a Phosphex Discharger, but let's ignore those for right now and just talk about the Storm Cannon, the, the Cyclonic Melted Lance, and the Grav Flux Bombard. Now, let's talk about the Storm Cannon first. A 24-inch range weapon, Strength 7, AP4, Heavy 6, Rending 5+, and Sunder. Also, it should be pointed out that, while it doesn't necessarily matter, it is an auto weapon, so if there was some sort of effect 
that would uh, cause you to you know, have a negative modifier, it wouldn't matter for you know, Imperialists. So the Leviathan Storm Cannon is only a 24-inch range weapon, but six shots at strength seven is nothing to scoff at. AP four, and most importantly, rending five up. So with six shots, if you're hitting with a ballistic skill of five, uh, then you're probably going to hit roughly five times. And of those five, you could probably expect one and a half rends, in addition to the fact that you've got Sunder so that you can re-roll penetration. So that plus rending means that you can actually score more cheeky hull points off of tanks than you might think otherwise. It's also not terrible for just plinking down infantry or whatever else. Um, it is a 10-point upgrade, so it's not free, but it's definitely something to think about. Um, if you wanted to take this, you could probably guarantee... I mean, the Leviathan is it is a thick unit, and it is designed to stand in the front and run forward. So 24-inch range doesn't bother you that much, probably, because in most games, it's it's probably going to be standing up close near the front to begin with. So range is not going to be a problem. There's almost definitely going to be a target of some kind, and a rending 5 plus means, like I said, you can even try to luck your way into hull pointing a Land Raider equivalent chassis or something if you need to. This is not a bad gun. Now the next one is the Melta Lance, and this one is 20 points. And the Cyclonic Melta Lance is... An 18-inch range, strength 8, AP 1, heavy 4, and then armor bane melta. So a melta gun with a longer range, 4 shots, on a chassis that is durable and has ballistic skill 5. So you're hitting on 2s. This is pretty nice. Now in particular, one of the things about this that's important though is that this is nice especially if this leviathan is going inside a drop pod. Now, if it's going inside a drop pod, you're going to want to at least consider a shooting weapon because Leviathans cannot charge out of their drop pods in a deep strike assault. So that being said, you can drop them close, hopefully within 9 inches, and then have a good chance of uh, wrecking almost any regular tank in the game, doing a lot of damage to something else. It's a 20-point upgrade, but I would say that for the... not maybe not... it's not guaranteed... Are you ready for some very soft math? Here it comes. So a Cyclonic Multilance shooting within 9 inches of range with 4 shots from a Leviathan will hit 3.3 repeating times. Of those 3 hits, um, we get to, as long as we're in Armor Bane range, we get 2 dice for our Melta attack uh, against the side armor. So let's say we're hitting the... the the toughest thing that you're, you're likely to see in a standard game, which is armor value 14. 8 minus 14 is 6, so you need a 6 to glance, a 7 to penetrate. If you're ever wondering how to figure this out at home, when you roll two dice, there are, you know, the numbers that you can come up with are 2 to 12. And because of the different permutations, the different, different chances that you can have of those dice coming up, there are uh, 36 different operant ways that the, those dice can show up. 6 times 6. Trust me, I asked several people who are smarter than I am. Basically, what it comes down to is that if you're trying to glance or penetrate an armor value 14 vehicle with a Melta, a strength 8 Melta within the Melta range, you have a 72% chance to cause a hull point and a 55% chance individually each time to cause a penetrating hit. When you factor that into roughly 
three and change hits, you're probably looking at roughly two penetrations, hopefully, if you're lucky. And if you hit penetrate twice with an AP1 weapon, this is where it gets dicey. I believe you have about a 66% chance to destroy the vehicle. Okay, so somebody correct me. And if you're not a math person, tune out for just a quick hot second. The way we figured this was you roll a dice two times. Every time on a five or a six, uh, the vehicle is destroyed. You get a vehicle destroyed result. Now, I believe that because they are two independent actions, two independent dice rolls, then when you're trying to figure out the variability and the likelihood of that occurring, the amount is additive, meaning you add 33% to 33% as well, and you get to 66%. This is different from when, say, like you're trying to calculate the likelihood of surviving a brutal strike from a thunder hammer, because that is a multiplicative thing where you have to take the likelihood of surviving the strike once and then multiply it against the, the chance of surviving it thus again. And that's you get your likelihood to survive from two strikes. That's why that's why getting hit by a Dreadnought as a Cataphractite Terminator sucks so hard to survive from because your likelihood of survival goes down dramatically because of the multiplicative value. At least that's my understanding of it. Math people, tell me if I'm wrong. However, if we put this in that in that way, if we think about it in this way, if you get a melt lance within nine inches of a high armor value target, you have a nice, nice reliability of penetrating and destroying that vehicle. This is a very good weapon for 20 points, and it is very useful. But the thing is, the main downside to this, in my estimation, is that if you want to guarantee the ability to get close enough for this, you really need to put this in something, some sort of transport which essentially means a super heavy with transport bay or a dreadnought drop pod. So those are both costly sort of additions to your army. So the I do recommend the Cyclonic Meltalands with the caveat of if you've got enough points to actually afford it. 20 points is what you pay for the gun, but you're going to have to spend more to make sure it gets someplace close enough that you can do what you want it to do. Now the last thing to consider as well is that because the Dreadnought is going to be within that 9 inches, if you can manage to get yourself within 6 inches, then you can also shoot the inbuilt Melt-A-Gun on the other hand, provided you're not going to long-range weapons, which I don't think you should do. Um, there maybe could be an argument for doing it with the two Storm Cannons, one, because it looks boss, and two, because you're more of a mid-range vehicle. Anyway, at 24 inches, you can try to peel points off of vehicles or whatever else, pepper infantry squads, etc. But if you're going with the Melti Lance, you're probably going to equip it with um, a melee weapon just to make sure you've got something to do in the subsequent rounds. Um, but that comes with a free melted gun as well. So an additional melted shot only further helping uh, give you a chance to actually pop whatever it is that you're shooting at. The last weapon um, option is only five points. It has a kind of sad 18-inch range. It's a grav weapon. It has AP4. It is a heavy one, large blast, five inches uh, grav weapon. It has ignores cover. It has concussion one, concussive one, sorry. It also has graviton collapse and torsion crusher. It does most notably not have haywire. So what exactly is this gun? So the Graviton Collapse rule says that instead of rolling to wound like you normally would, the controlling player of the, any model hit by this 5-inch blast must roll equal to or under that model's strength, equal to 
or under. On 2d6, or it suffers a wound, armor saves and damage mitigation taken as normal, except for shrouded that can't be used. Against armor with and against targets with an armor value, the attacking player rolls 4d6 for armor penetration instead. The other rule, it has the torsion crusher rule, which says it, when a target with armor value is struck by a weapon with this special rule, the armor amount of hull point damaged by this weapon is doubled. Okay, so we can go back to the same basic and overly complex, not that complex, it's complex for me, math, uh, to start thinking about how effective this thing actually is. So first of all, against infantry, they have to equal to, uh, roll equal to or under their strength on 2d6, and you've got, uh, on average, you're talking about a 4. So let's talk about how this all works. Using the same mathematical model we used to uh, put together the likelihood of armor penetration happening, we know that on 2d6, the likelihood of rolling at or below 4 for a strength, which is mostly what they're going to be shooting at, at least it's, if it's Marines versus Marines, it's way worse if it's anything other than Marines or anything softer than Marines. 83% of the time, you are going to be wounded by this weapon. Now, it is still... Despite that, you get regular armor saves, so it's not going to do that much to you in regards to anything else. I should also point out that it does not necessarily have the same rule as the other grav weapons in that it does not cause difficult terrain or dangerous terrain. So it does not have the other benefits that grav gets, and it doesn't have haywire. Instead, like I said, we've got this 4d6 thing. So let's take a look at how likely the 4d6 thing is to come into effect. So a little bit of behind-the-curtain math here. When we're looking at the likelihood of something with 2d6 rolling, um, as I said, basically, you just look at the number of permutations and realize how many align with the thing that you want. So when you're rolling two dice, 6 times 6, this means there's 36 possible permutations, combinations of those dice rolls that are going to come out of it. When you roll six and a six and a six and a six-sided dices, um, that gets up to 1,296 different permutations. Now, theoretically, if a melt-a-gun is strength eight plus 2d6, then that is theoretically a lower, theoretically a lower cap than what this grav can do because 6d6 has the potential to score higher, you know? The highest that you could possibly penetrate um, with a melted gun is an armor value 20. You don't ever need to puncture armor value 20, but you could. You could theoretically get up to 24. Now, does that mean that it's better? No. Because do you know what's better than 4d6? 2d6 plus a guarantee of two dice rolls that are above average on the other two dice. 8 is above average better than you can expect most of the time for two of those dice rolls plus the option to roll higher, okay? Now, on top of that, even with the torsion crusher rule, which is going to double the number of hull points you do to the vehicle, you still only get one shot with this gun. Now, admittedly, it costs a quarter as much because it's only five points extra, okay? It doesn't matter. It's just not as good. It's more effective at wounding infantry, you're going to wound quite a few infantry under it, but anyone who's shot a template knows that the thing doesn't always stay where you want it to, and even with Ballistic Skill 5, it's going to scoot a little bit. 
So yes, are you very likely to wound at 83% of the time? 100%. Does that mean you're guaranteed any kills? 100% not. Uh, you don't have rending like you do on the Storm Cannon. Is the Storm Cannon better to shoot infantry? Probably. It's only five points more, and it's got rending, and it's got other possibilities, and it can do other stuff as well. Is the Grab Cannon better at killing infantry than the Melta? Um, probably also not, because the Melta gets four shots, and within 18 inches, if you're just trying to pluck four dudes off the board, well, Strength 8 AP 1 means you're instant killing everything and nothing is going to get a regular armor save, so you're probably going to kill more things with the Melta anyway if you're just shooting at infantry. Shooting at tanks, it's not even worth discussing, as we've kind of talked about there. You're not going to do enough damage, and you're not going to get the vehicle explodes result with this weapon. Does it look cool? Absolutely. Will I think you're a cool person if you model one? 100%. Do you think I should spend? you should spend your hard-earned money buying this? Um, only if you really want to. I would stick with the Melt-A-Lance or the Storm Cannon. There is one more shooting upgrade to talk about, and that's the Phosphex Discharger. It has a near and dear place to my heart because it reminds me of how Fox Fex used to be. Disgusting, terrifying, and awful. So, um, it got a little bit worse in some ways, but improved in others. The Phosphex Discharger is an 18-inch range. It is Strength 5 and AP 2. It's Heavy 1 and Barrage and a Blast only 3 inches as opposed to a 5 inches, but that's okay. It's poisoned 3+, plus, so you're going to be wounding on 3s, and crawling fire and lingering death. So it leaves dangerous, difficult terrain behind it, and also crawling fire is you still get to move the template a little bit after you've shot it, if it can get to more models. So with Ballistic Skill 5, um, you're going to be reducing 5 inches off that scatter dice of that 2d6, so it's you're probably going to have a pretty good shot of getting it landed where you want to anyway. The crawling fire being able to scoot it an additional two inches in any direction that you wish in order to try to land it, that's really good. The most important difference to note here for the Phosphex Discharger is that it's no longer once a game. So while you don't get to use it, um, well, you don't get the five-inch blast, having a three-inch blast that you can use two turns is, is probably maybe better in some situations. So let's say you drop this thing out of a drop pod and the first turn you use the Phosphex Discharger and then unload some Meltas, some Volkite Culverins, or some Heavy Flamers into a, you know, a squad of regular Joes, or whatever, you're going to punch into the side of a vehicle. Uh, you charge in, you get into combat. If things go well, you're out of combat by turn three. You get a chance to use this thing again before you charge into your second target. If you get blown up and uh, you only get to use it once because your opponent is afraid of you, I mean, whatever. You would have lost that 20 points if you would have uh, thrown a Melt-A-Lance onto it anyway. So, you know, whatevs. I do think that the Phosphix Discharger, because of its specialization on infantry, is probably something that I would not double up with in the same time when I was putting it uh, or putting on like a, a solid anti-tank option. I could see putting this onto the Dreadnought and also putting on like a Storm Cannon or something because you're potentially just going to be chunking into infantry, thick infantry, depending on who your opponents are. Um, but yeah, do I like this? Yes. Am I probably going to roll a bowling ball with, um, this thing and then two melee weapons? Almost definitely. Speaking of which, let's get into those melee weapons. So the Leviathan has two really nice, uh, melee options. And again, consider that each of these come in built with a melting gun. So you've got an anti-tank or at least, um, anti-tough infantry killing sort of thing, no matter what. Something I like to remind people when you're firing a melting gun, 
you know, it, you might not always get to shoot it at a tank, and that might feel wasteful. But when you think about the fact that you're paying like a 15-point upgrade to, or, you know, whatever the equivalent is for your model. But if you're putting it on something like a Leviathan with a Ballistic Skill 2, and even if you're only shooting it at like a standard Marine or like a Veteran or something, if you're taking like a 17-point, an 18-point model off the board, you're paying for that Melt-A-Gun right there. So it's not necessarily a waste just to use a Melt-A-Gun just to take off some average Joe, right? Um, if you have the opportunity to remove some points, obviously you're going to take it. Don't feel bad about it. Besides, it's funny to think about a dude getting melted in the face. Anyway, moving on. Okay, so the Leviathan Siege Claw, which is what you come with basic, is Strength 10, AP 2, Melee, and Brutal 3. So this is just like the regular Contemptor Claw, just better by one strength. This does matter because there are definitely some models in the game with Toughness 5 that a Contemptor cannot instant kill because of this. Not that it matters usually because of Brutal 3, but just for example, like throwing a Contemptor into uh, Myrmidon Secutor Hosts, for example. They get invulnerable saves, yeah, they gotta roll a million of them, but they're Toughness 5, so you can't instant kill them, you can't instant squish them with the Contemptor, so they stick around for longer than you'd want them to. Not a problem with the Leviathan, snip snip says the Claw. The next one is the Leviathan Siege Drill, and this one's nice too. This is Strength 12 AP2 Melee and Armor Bane Melee. So you get to the Armor Bane, you're rolling 2d6 for Armor Penetration. You can't fail to glance a Land Raider with this. Uh, 12 plus 2d6 equals always glancing. So that's pretty darn good if you're trying to chop up one of these things. I definitely think that putting one of these onto a melee dread is a good idea. I think, though, if I had to choose only one melee option, if I was going to run the gun and the melee option, I'm not sure I would take the siege drill. I like strength 12 AP2, but the ability to just guarantee the death of things with uh, brutal, I think it's probably better against other dreadnoughts, and it's definitely better against like anything with a high invulnerable save than just your single, regular swings with the Armor Bane Siege Drill. Admittedly, the Armor Bane is going to come in handy on the Dreadnoughts also because you're getting to re-roll your failed wounds, but when you're at Strength 10 or Strength 12, you're still wounding all other Dreadnoughts, including other Leviathans, on a 2+. So I would say that probably, if, I was, if you're gambling, that the Brutal is ultimately a better deal for you there. However, I do really like the idea of um, using one of each. So let's talk about my loadouts. I definitely think that I'm going to put, I don't know, I like the idea of the two melee Leviathan and uh, a Siege Claw and a, dr a Siege Drill, both with Melta Guns inside, um, putting on the Phosphex Discharger, leaving the Heavy Flamers, on the the tank or on the, the thing i really like this for a couple of reasons this is a good one good combo for a dreadnought drop plod because you're going to hop out you're going to fire your different things you've got the melted guns if you happen to get close to a tank and you want to peel a couple hull points maybe go for a lucky vehicle destroyed but you've also got a couple of different anti-infantry weapons for just dropping templates down into your the middle of your opponents whatever on top of that also, it makes the Dreadnought a nice target for um, the return fire or the Overwatch reaction because you're going to get those Walls of Death attacks plus the template. You know, it's it's cool. I like it. It's also relatively cheap. 
because you're just adding 20 points for the phosphex. So uh, you're obviously going to need to add 100 points for the, the drop pod. So it, it comes out to about a 400-point model. Not terrible. I would also consider leaving on the Siege Claw and swapping out the other Siege Claw for the Cyclonic Melted Lance for 20 points. That, like I said, as I demonstrated, it's a great way to try to help you guarantee the destruction of a tank, especially if you're in a list which is going to be lacking in traditional heavy support. This is a good one to like really lean on because it's going to be coming in from Deep Strike. So long as you make that Deep Strike happen, you are going to be able to place it, get it close to something, and hopefully that ends up being in within 9 inches. It's a good way to guarantee that you're getting shots on target as needed. I don't hate the idea of the storm cannons or even dual storm cannons just because I think it sounds cool. I might just run one with one and have it walk across the board, though, um, because, you know, 24 inches range, as I said, you're going to be placing it forward. It ends up being a slightly cheaper way to run the Leviathan. And let's be honest, a Leviathan is a very nice distraction carnifex. It must be attacked. It must be killed. It's toughness eight. It's got seven wounds. It's got a 5-plus invulnerable save, and it's immune to instant death. It needs to, be, it needs to be chunked before it wades into everything. The ultimate question, though, still remains, is it better than a Contemptor Dreadnought? And the answer is uh, no. The, the Leviathan is not better than the Contemptor Dreadnought. There are a couple things that it does really, really nicely, but the biggest thing is that the Leviathan is costed, I think, more appropriately for what it's going to do, especially when you consider its slower movement means that you are going to really want to think about or need to think about putting it inside a drop pod. It has it has small weaknesses and things that it needs to overcome, so it's got to be supported more with points. A Leviathan in a drop pod with any sort of upgrade at all is 400 points, and that's a significant chunk of your force no matter what you're doing. So you're going to have to think long and hard about buying this. It's a cool, iconic unit. Um, they were super popular last edition, so I'm sure a lot of people will be happy to hear that it's still something you can and consider doing. But maybe more importantly, I think it's priced prohibitively enough that you're not going to be able to spam them, and you're definitely not going to feel bad about putting one of these things in there. A Contemptor Dreadnought with the Melta Cannon upgrade for five points that it has, you can buy two of those for a little bit less than the cost of one Dreadnought, one Leviathan Dreadnought in a drop pod. Um, it's still still a big problem. Contemptors, because they are too cheap, too strong, too fast, too survivable, and have too much utility, are still going to be the better option. Does that mean you shouldn't be taking Leviathans? No, 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 no. That's not what I said. Leviathans are cool. Leviathans are priced f in a friendly way. Go ahead and take some Leviathans. They're cool. So next time we'll talk about that other weird boat, Dreadnought. I love the Derodeo and what it does, but sometimes I'm just not sure if I absolutely adore or absolutely despise the design. I have one that I made out of a Contemptor, um, but I should really get an official one for one of my other forces. We'll talk about the Derodeo next time and its role in things. Also, the Derodeo, you'll be happy to know, is a Dreadnought you can take without feeling terrible about hurting your friend's feelings. Like the Leviathan, you know, the bowling ball of death, it is definitely really scary, but at least it's not priced so competitively that um, it makes your friends hurt when they see it. All right, next up, I got a little segment. I managed to go talk to my friend, Dark Apostle Ben, and uh, for the end of the show here, we're just going to reflect on our time at Beta Garmin and what a great time it was. Also, I'd like to preemptively apologize. I'm going to um, edit the heck out of it, 
But um, Ben's cat just loves me and – well, loves everybody, but I'm pretending it's me. And he just would not shut up the entire time we were there despite him kicking out of the basement several times. So prepare to meet our two guests to the podcast, one intentional and the other entirely accidental. All right, and I'm here with Dark Apostle Ben, and I've come over to his place to chat about um, the end of our beta garment experience in nine months, eight months, seven months, many months. I'm not sure when we started. I'm not sure when we started. It was August. <laughs> was it August? It was August. It wasn't July? Did we start playing in July? I don't know. Maybe. Well, we pre-gamed, if nothing else. But we've been—I mean, since the start of the edition, we've been—we've been thinking towards this mission. Alex was kind enough to share a little bit of information about it early, and then once we got it rolling, we jumped in with two feet. And it's been two weeks since Adepticon. Yeah. And uh, we're the dust is kind of settling here for us, and we're finally getting an opportunity to come over and chat with you. And uh, I just wanted to get out on this episode about uh, about that experience. So um, we both played in the Beta Garment event, and as it happens, we played in the same game. I can't remember if I mentioned this in the last... Did I talk about this in the last episode? I don't know. I don't, I don't know. remember. You don't remember? I don't remember either. Well, so the way Alex had it set up is that there were two very large tables of at least five tables put together, right? Yeah. Then there were just a number of other solo games that people played. Some people playing team games, some people playing one-on-one. Um, but Ben and I both ended up at uh, the same big game table because that's really the experience that I had wanted. And it is a children's, uh, well, it's not children's podcast, but it's intended to be family friendly. So, <laughs> Ben, you can you can uh, say the name of the uh, of the table as was deigned by our tournament organizer exactly one time. Okay. So, hey everybody, welcome to F- Town. That's right. That was the name designated. It was a, it was more of a call sign, casual call sign, but that was the name of it. Indeed. Um, we ended up setting up on that table and playing roughly 25,000 points aside. Is that right? Roughly, yeah. Roughly. Right in that ballpark. Right in that ballpark. It was fantastic. It was pretty wild, and we kind of just estimated it because nobody wrote down lists. Um, we were just like, how many points do you have? And then we just did some math, and then somebody just brought in a bunch of Imperial Fist tanks. So admittedly, for the loyalists, at least a thousand points of that was just empty land raiders, because we were just yeah. like, well, I'll just put them down on the table. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah, it was a twenty-five thousand point aside game, and um, we had some very loose rules to follow as yeah. far as how it went. We decided at the table that. Um, the whole thing is, you know, it seems to make more sense to have the traders take first turn. So we gave it, gave traders first turn. And then we um, had a number of Dominion and um, Onslaught objectives. Yep. Right? Yeah, five of each, I believe. Five of each. Just put basically through the middle of the table across all the tables. Yeah. We made sure to spread them out evenly. And that was about it. Also, guest starring here uh, is Dark Apostle Percival. Ben's cat, who is just aggressively friendly. Yeah, he's very obnoxious. He's very obnoxious. Hi, Percy. Uh, anyway, in the uh, in the game itself, we ended up with how many were there aside? Um, gosh, was it like six? Let's roughly. See. 
Roughly. Roughly six Roughly. a side. I think we had less. On our table. Yeah. I think there were, I think we were, I think we were undermanned on the loyalist side. Yeah, I think we outnumbered you by player. Yeah, at least a player, but which was fine because. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> which won't work. Um, which was fine because that was kind of the theme of the whole experience, quite honestly. And I ended up, it was basically like the tables were set up in sort of a, uh, a U. Yeah. And the Loyalists were on the inside of the U, and the Traders were on the outside. And it was kind of interesting because... Alright, we took a little break for for Dark Apostle Ben to lock that cat, <laughs> kick the cat out of the basement. Where we're back, okay. He'll be back. He'll be back too. <laughs> um, but basically, the way it had set up is I ended up on the inside of the U... And what did we have in our little corner? We had that... Was it Daniel? Was that the kid's name? Yeah, we had... The Emperor's with the, with Children? The Emperor's Children, yep. And then we had the Death Guard. Yes, Eric, Eric, I think. Yep. yep. And then myself. Mm-hmm. And then we had... Then we started to move away from the people who were beating up on you. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, so um, it was basically... The way it was set up, it seemed like I was going to face Ben and two other people... Um, and then there were just like a bunch of other people farther us. And honestly, I have no idea how that part of the game went. We <laughs> scored it up at the end. Um, and the loyalists did lose, which makes sense. And honestly, you were probably responsible for about half of those victory points. Yeah. We, I, I was playing the objectives. Yes. And putting everybody else between me and the things that might kill yeah. me. So, you know, we, we, uh, orchestrated a grand victory. How many, how many points of word barriers did you end up, roughly, do you think? I, I think I put down 4,500. Okay. So Ben had, I mean, basically, like, your part of the table was just full of Marines. Yeah, it was mostly infantry. Because you had, like, a ton of infantry. And you did have you did have your, your Leviathans that pushed up in front. Yeah, I had my Dread Trio, the two Leviathans, and the Margal. Margal, yep. But basically, Ben was able to just stand on objectives, Dominion objectives, and just score points. Yep. And you also took a, a an onslaught objective as yeah. well. I ended up. I probably brought about fifty five hundred points of iron hands, which was exactly what I wanted to do. It was fantastic because, like the whole thing, when I put this together, you know, kind of last minute. So I basically got the idea. I had been messing around with iron hands a little bit because of the podcast, but I got this idea that like I could do a really dumb last stand thing. With the Beta Garmin theme. And so I put this all together and I painted that all those army that whole army in like three weeks, yeah. three and a half weeks, <laughs> with a week vacation to Oregon in the middle of that. Now admittedly, if you see any pictures, and I'm gonna put some of the pictures that I have in here, you'll notice my models are not like I mean, they're not going in the golden demon case. No. That's for sure. Um, but uh, you know, I did put a lot of I put a lot of effort into getting that done like that. Um, and so it was awesome to be able to get it to pay off. My whole thing was to play and have the, the nameplates on the bottom for my infantry and then to keep track of who lived and who died. And bef- before it ended, I did, in fact, take a picture of the, the Marines that did survive the apocalypse battle. Nice. Tally, you're living in Yeah, your exactly. It was pretty funny because, well, my first round, you guys had a first turn. Yeah against me on that side of the board was the death guard player had two full 10 man squads of of last cannons oh yeah and the emperor's children had a 
uh, Falchion. Yep. <laughs> and so. yep. And um, what else did he have? He had a bunch of other little tank. He, he actually had a lot of tanks. Then a burst yeah. sword and guy. Did he have some rapiers in there too? Yes, he did have some rapiers. Yeah. He did have some rapiers. So like my little my te- my kind of terrible um, armored spearhead army was basically on the board. And then I put as many points of imper- or, uh, as many points of iron hands as I could into outflank with head of the gorgon because we're just kind of we're just kind of playing it loose here but so i had a mastodon (laughs) i had a spartan and a land raider oh and two land raider um achilles the the melted varieties in in outflank and so my turn two was great yeah but i I mean fantastic if we were if we were playing by the rules that like you have to have models on the board to bring in your reserves i almost wouldn't have made it yeah it was close because by by the time by the time it was my turn to do turn two i think i had a rhino not wrecked on the board (laughs) and then i had like tactical marines that were just hiding behind whatever cover they could yeah that was all that was left of my original force because yep. I think I lost f- five, all five predators, one of the rhinos, the Sakaran, the Fellblade. Also hilariously, I bought those upgrades, the Blessed Auto Simulacra for every vehicle all weekend long at uh, Adepticon, and I didn't roll one <laughs> single "It Will Not Die" roll mm-hmm. at all. Yeah. But the outflank was awesome. It was. It was great to see them just come surging on the yeah, on from behind enemy lines with the mastodon and everything. Yeah, the mastodon maybe the game's dumbest unit right now. No, it's probably not true. Probably the like stormhammer, the bane, the bane, uh, stormhammer variants and whatever. Those are really overcosted right now too. But the mastodon being a seven hundred point transport is pretty funny. <laughs> it is. But it was really cool, really fun. What was your favorite part about that whole thing? Oh gosh, I mean, it was it was just a blast playing with all those people at once, and the, the warlord titan on the middle mm-hmm. of the board that was slagging through the iron warriors. Yeah, I took a, sh- a turn of pot shots at it with my Spartan, and then it turned around to shoot me <laughs> in retaliation, and I managed to eat its entire shooting round with, with my Spartan. Spartan. The Spartan <laughs> died at the end of it, but it it just whole pointed out that's funny so i was like well that was those were points well spent i didn't manage to chip a wound off it at all but (laughs) i got its attention (laughs) that is funny yeah you were kind of in it was funny because every time ben was just over there like rping being the evil mastermind (laughs) and you know just standing on objectives and scoring and like i think you killed some of my tactical marines with some reek you had a recon squad that kept shooting at me some imperial fist dropped down on me oh that's right tried to shift me in the as we went on there, but we were able to, you know, dreadnought a off. <laughs> yeah. I can't remember your Ashen Circle. You deep struck your Ashen Circle as well. Yeah, we dropped in on uh, some snipers and just torched them. Nice. Yeah. They, they had been, we'd had a little sniper duel going with a couple of my recon squads and a couple of his recon squads. And uh, yeah, then I was like, all right, you know, it's time to just burn these guys off the table. And then there was the one guy who was, um, I can't remember his name, but he was so drunk <laughs> and he was the one doing all the sniping and Dave. I Dave, think. yeah. He had seen that there was some there was like one of the scoring requirements was like or one of the ways to I think to win an award was like to get the longest snipe or whatever. So he, he a just lot of sniping he, he did. He, yeah, his recon marines. So basically you'd just be playing and all of a sudden out of nowhere 
a super long tape measure would just fly into your face. <laughs> and you just, like, very shrilly scream, I'm measuring! Is it on him? Is it on that guy? And, um, yeah. It was great. It was pretty funny. Yeah. He did almost knock over that Warhound or, or that Warlord Titan several times by leaning or basically laying on the table. And one time he laid on one of my tanks. And I was like, could you, could you not do that? And then he very kindly looked at me and was like, do you want to chest bump one of my models later? Would that make you feel better? And I said, no, thank you. I'm okay. But it was pretty fun. Yeah, it was a good time. I was really happy with how... So it was exactly the kind of narrative that I had imagined getting myself into. And yeah. so that was very cool and, and felt very rewarding. I also really liked the fact that despite all of the work that went into it or whatever, having it just be like a nighttime event... Oh, yeah. I thought it actually worked really well. It was great fun. It was a lot of fun. The energy was yes. fantastic. Yes. And, um, yeah, like playing alongside all those different people and, and whatever. So comm- kudos to Alex again for... It was a great event yeah. and campaign leading up to it. Yeah. I enjoyed it a lot. Yeah. I'm curious. I think I think if I heard right, I'm not sure that he's... I think he's, uh, he's not sure what he's doing next year, if he's going to do the same thing or not. Because it was probably a lot of work. Oh, I'm sure. Um, but uh, I really enjoyed it, and I don't know. I'm already trying to think about what I'm going to theme something towards for next year. Oh, gosh, I've got so many ideas. Yeah. What are your projects you're looking at for the next, well, the short term, I guess? Goodness. Well, I'm working on my Imperial Fists right now. Oh, right. Uh, I've got Sons of Horus that I want to do more with. Um, looking at space wolves, I've got some ideas for demon lists. Mm -hmm. More of that, yeah. Mixing them in with the word bearers, maybe doing some dark summoning, yeah. Um, It'll be a lot of fun. So I I I gotta focus and pick every once. You have you have a lot of projects. I can't I can't just do one thing. (laughs) Right. I came back from Adepticon and I I was like I'm gonna I'm gonna mix it up and so I got all those squigs out. For the Gloom Spike gets for Age of Sigmar. And those models are crazy. Yeah. Um, and I started working on them a little bit. But I keep thinking about heresy. Yeah. So, I don't know. I'm going to see what I do. I think um, I think my plan is... You're not coming to Bug Eaters, right? No, I've got too much going on in June. Okay. I might be able to make it still. I, I bought the tickets as soon as they came out. Because I was like, I want to be able to do this. It is right at the end of the school year. Uh, for me and so i don't really know but they're doing a themed thing for siege of terra and basing it like right around like the saturnine gate era or point of the siege so basically anything siege is going to be cool there yeah it sounds like a lot of fun yeah i wish i could go yeah sean has um some pretty sweet rules written up for the demon or ascended versions of the primarchs they look pretty fun i'm i'm hoping that you know, hopefully we can get somebody to play each of those, you know. <laughs> I know of, have you seen in the Discord, have you seen Bryce's work on his Demon Fulgrim? I haven't seen progress. Oh. Uh, well, and if anybody goes to Bug Eaters, uh, hopefully Bryce gets that done. It's gonna, he, he spent so much time. This man is meticulous. And he's been working on and planning out this conversion for a while. It's gonna be awesome when it gets done. Yeah, but I can't re- wait to see its final form. Yeah. But I think I'm going to work on, actually, I'm going to think I'm going to go back and do a little bit more with the White Scars, because for that and also for our event in October, yeah, we have our little Iowa and Midwestern 
event that we just run at a, an Airbnb someplace. Yeah. And um, we're going to do Siege of Terra as well. But I think I'm just going to do White Scars because it sounds like the other guy who is a White Scars player really wants to do Militia. Oh, yeah. And I think you really need to have... You gotta have the white scars of the siege, right? I mean, it makes sense. It does make sense. And I've got the con, you know, so I've spent a little bit of time putting into that, and then maybe, I don't know, for next year for Adepticon, I'm thinking Night Lords. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Finally gonna paint him. Finally gonna paint him. I've had him for forever. <laughs> they have, their blue has been something that has annoyed me for a long time. But seeing our friend Scott's, oh, yeah. you know, and on the table with Tom. Yeah. Just seeing the, those two armies. Gorgeous armies. Oh my gosh, yeah. I I, th- I know for sure I raved about their armies last, oh, yeah, last episode. But anyway, definitely going to be... I think definitely it's the time for that. I'm not going to... I have plenty of armies to, to round out or finish up. There's some things I still want to do with the Iron Hands. Yeah. And I need to update the White Scars more to this edition because with some of the points changing and whatever, I don't really have a reliable way to get to 3K that I really, really like. Oh. Yeah. At least not without units that are just really bad now. Sure. Um, like the Cestus Assault Ram, you know? Right. That can't transport the models that I bought it to transport now. Yep. So anyway, I think that's what I'm going to do. Sounds like a plan. Well, I hope, listeners, I hope you all, if you were involved in the Beta Garmin thing, you had a good time as well. And thanks for listening to Ben and I ramble about it. And Percival, of course. Thanks for listening to us ramble about it for so many months and i can't wait to start on the next thing yeah uh let me know though i mean what do you all do with the post adepticon like high or low as it is like where do you go from here how do you plan your next projects and talk talk to me about what you're thinking um we're going to continue on with the series on helping zach's uh imperial fists and i i would like to know what else what else you're doing if you guys have a big list of um pile of opportunity so to speak, <laughs> you'd like to share with us, um, you know, send it in to ineptusestartus30k.com. Anyway, Ben, thanks again for being on the show. It's been a pleasure. All right. Talk to you soon, audience. Thank you so much for listening and being a constant supporter of the channel. I really appreciate that. Please get reach out to me at ineptusestartus30k at gmail.com uh, with your questions, comments, whatever. I will be working on this series for Zach for probably two more episodes. Man, that guy's got a lot of Imperial Fist models. But after that, I'd love to do it again for someone else. Um, I think that would be a fun thing to do weekly or, you know, probably monthly, I guess, as long as it takes with some of these. Regardless, I would really love to continue doing that. So if you've got a pile of models and you want help putting them together, please reach out to me. Also on the YouTube channel, which I've been neglecting for a while, I'm going to start reposting some of these old episodes finally and getting those loaded up. And then there also should be a new video YouTube exclusive as I finally get around to talking about the Centurions for the all of the different legions. Um, that's actually in the can and recorded. I just have to find time and edit that as well. So hopefully I get all that to you soon. And I hope you're having yourself a good time, taking care of yourself, and hobbying well. And uh, talk to you soon. Thanks.